Hello, I'm Alberto Salvato. Welcome to Crime Time, a Virginia criminal law podcast. I'm here with Anna Dvorak and Ann Thayer. Enjoy the show. So here it is, legal disclaimer, because we are lawyers and we've got to write one. So if you are listening to this podcast, thank you. We sincerely hope you are listening to this podcast for its entertainment value and not with the intention of acquiring legal advice for any individual case or situation. I mean, come on, you wouldn't take advice from someone you have never met or spoken to directly, right? If you were bleeding profusely, you wouldn't listen to a podcast in hopes of a bandage somehow materializing over the internet and onto your 3D printer. Seeking actual legal advice can be just as important as a tourniquet. The hosts of this podcast are in no way intending to create an attorney-client relationship with any listener. Sorry, we are sure you all are great people, but we cannot stress enough how little we know of you and your case. And rather than risk an awkward moment, let us just remember we have never met. Nothing on this platform should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. We are just a group of friends with differing opinions and viewpoints, which we will try to explore through discussions of current events, law changes, and whatever else floats our fancy. In this episode, an interview with Ed Nuttall, Democratic candidate for the top prosecutor job in Fairfax County. I've known Ed for quite some time, and he actually accepted an invitation to come on our podcast. We extended the invitation to his opponent and uh, incumbent, Steve Descano, who is obviously currently the top prosecutor in Fairfax County. We've uh, submitted or asked our our public or or audience to submit some questions that we're going to ask Ed today, and hopefully he provides some answers that can help clarify his platform and his stance and why he's running. Before we let Ed introduce himself, I want to welcome back Blake Wallison. You know, he's a friendly face and fan and still trying to hijack our podcast here, but he is subbing in for our fellow co-host, Anthony Norse, who because of his selection as a substitute judge in Fairfax, they have certain judicial ethics or canons that they have to follow because this involves some political issues and in an election, we could not have Mr. Norris on the podcast tonight. So he understandably had to sit this one out and we will miss him tonight and all his wisdom. But we thank Blake for filling in or welcome back, Blake, if you'd like to say something to our listeners and then we'll let Ed introduce himself and get started. Not a fan of the pod, just trying to take it over. Ed, go ahead, man. How how are you? Thank you for being on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. For everybody, my name is Ed Nuttall. I'm the Democratic candidate for Commonwealth's attorney in Fairfax County. I've been a trial attorney for the past 26 years. I've tried cases in every level of the courthouse, probably a dozen or so jury trials over the years and hundreds of bench trials. I've been a court-appointed attorney in the beginning of my career. I was a prosecutor for three years from 99 to 2002 under Bob Horan. I've been a criminal defense attorney for 23 years. I've worked as a guardian ad litem for court-appointed kids and abuse and neglect cases. I've worked as a court-appointed attorney for civil commitment hearings. I've done a whole host of civil and criminal cases. Uh, The last three and a half years in this courthouse have been eye-opening for me and everybody in the legal community. I'll tell you right now, I'm not a politician. I'm a trial attorney. But what I've seen in the past three and a half years has caused me to do what I'm doing, which is running for political office to try to fix what's wrong with our Commonwealth Attorney's Office. Let's get into a little bit about what is wrong, because, you know, Mr. Descano, who we did invite on for this podcast, and we had not heard back from him. So he has not either accepted or declined, and perhaps we'll hear back from him in a different date. But Mr. Descano came in with a wave of reform candidates across the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that included in Arlington, Loudoun County, Prince William, and other places, and in other places like in Norfolk and places like that. So They came in and said, we're not going to prosecute simple possession of weed. We're not going to, this is before weed was basically decriminalized. And now simple possession under a certain amount isn't even a crime if you're over 21. So he came in with this wave of hope. And a lot of his policies were things that I supported. I'm a former public defender, full disclosure, and I have donated to Ed's campaign. But are those things that he came in and those policy ideas of not prosecuting mandatory minimums, not prosecuting weed at the time. Were those things that you support in general? Yeah, I don't have a problem with the reforms. What I have a problem with is how he attempts to implement those reforms. And he really has utterly failed at doing so. Prosecution is about accountability and it's nuanced. So even reform candidates, the, the ones that know what they're doing, like Parissa in Arlington County, she prosecutes violent offenders aggressively and effectively. And she gives other folks a second and third and fourth chances, people with addiction, people with 
mental illness, people with intellectual disabilities, people affected by poverty and age, the old folks and the younger folks. You know, some of these folks do things that are against the law, but it's not criminal behavior. It's based on mental health. And we need to take care of those people. We need to give them the tools and resources that they need to correct their behavior. And prosecution doesn't mean putting everyone in jail. But this prosecutor, my opponent, hasn't been able to affect even the basic necessities of his current job. So without doing that, he can't affect any type of meaningful reform. And he hasn't. How do you think you would have done it differently had you run four years before and had the same ideas, the same reform platform? Well, I think I would have been able to keep a lot of the senior prosecutors that were in the office and implement the reform, the meaningful common sense reform that's necessary today. You know, law and order is out the window. Prosecution is nuanced. Uh, we just don't put everyone in jail anymore. We don't incarcerate everyone. We never did do that. But that's what we get accused of wanting to do. And that's just not the case. My opponents lost 54 prosecutors in three and a half years. He attributes that to natural attrition that, hey, you know, the lifespan of a prosecutor is only a year, a year and a half. That's just simply untrue. We've heard stories that have been well documented in the in the Washington Post of prosecutors telling my opponent, hey, I'm overwhelmed. I'm undertrained. We're understaffed. We need help. I don't understand these child molestation cases. I've got 48 cases. This is from a former prosecutor who's now prosecuting in another jurisdiction in Virginia. So it's not that he left because he doesn't want to be a prosecutor. He left because he wasn't trained and he wasn't supported by the current office. When you lose 54 prosecutors, you lose the ability to try those difficult cases. You lose your effectiveness. We've seen on a regular basis cases that are being dismissed by judges because of discovery violations, very basic foundational issues that a prosecutor's office deals with. And it's not because my opponent doesn't have resources. He took prosecutors out of the office at the beginning of the pandemic to try general district court cases. And the county, as a result, gave him all the money he needed to hire all the prosecutors and all the paralegals he wanted to implement those reforms. And it's utterly failed. And we need change. Do you what think was that the that? office was underfunded before? I think the office ran on a real tight budget because uh, the chief prosecutors didn't ask for more bodies and they didn't ask for paralegals and they didn't have the type of technology that we have today that we're able to provide discovery in the manner we do today. But the problem is with the current way we do discovery is that you've got paralegals looking at this. The prosecutors don't necessarily look at it. So the paralegal sends the defense attorney, the discovery. That doesn't mean that the prosecutor who's assigned to that case has looked at that discovery. The second problem with the discovery process is that there's a lack of communication based on a lack of trust between law enforcement and the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. So there's no partnership in these types of cases. So when they go up there, they may not have talked to a victim of a sexual assault before trial. They may not have talked to the detective. And you can't rely solely on What's on your computer screen to prosecute a case? I know that much. Uh, fairness to your opponent, there's a big change that happened. We had 3A11, which is our discovery rule changed. And there's lots of body cam. I know as a defense attorney, and I'm sure you found this as well, is that there's a lot more work that goes into a regular case. And I think that that, regardless of whether uh, the incumbent had won the last time or Mr. Descano, they would have had a hard time dealing with the volume of information. Because in fairness, even in the old system, I'd say I was probably more attentive to the discovery and evidence to perhaps a line pros prosecutor on a particular day. Now that there is more staff, now that there are more people to look at this, how would you organize them differently? I don't mean so much like how do you do like the personnel and everything, but how would you boost morale and get people to follow their obligations so that if there's a problem with the case, it's found early? and not discovered a trial when, uh-oh, we have a, a victim who has now made four different statements and we didn't know about it until the night before trial? So that's a long question, but I'll try to answer it. There's two things that are missing currently. One is the communication between law enforcement and the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. There's no partnership that I can see. And, I, and I've talked to many, many police officers and detectives in that office, in that department in the last three and a half years, and each and every one of them says, we just don't have the relationship that we need with them in order for us to assist in properly preparing the prosecutor for that case. And that relationship has to exist for there to be effective prosecution, for there to be accountability in prosecution. And so the prosecutor who is assigned these cases understands this is the discovery. 
but we can't just look at a computer screen. We have to go out and interview witnesses, especially in child sex abuse cases. We can't just look at a report and expect to interview 12-year-old victim of a sexual assault and make it work in circuit court the way it's supposed to work. The prosecutors need to establish relationships with the victims and survivors of sexual abuse in order to effectively prosecute those cases. Are you able to tell like victims witness and victims of of these cases that the cases are bad and they shouldn't go forward? Oh, that's your duty as a prosecutor is to evaluate the case and identify the issues in the case and say, listen, here's what we have to prove. Here's what we have. And here's the difficulties we have in this case. So but can, can you go to victims witness and tell them that so that they're not on the phone to Fox 5 or TV 7 when they don't like a result? because it's a bad case, because a witness is given multiple statements and it shouldn't go forward and it should never even like be up in circuit court. So that's a function of communication. Again, that's another lack of communication between the victim services division, the police department and the Commonwealth attorney's office. There is no communication. They don't email each other. They don't respond to each other. There needs to be that relationship. So the victims trust the victim's advocates, but the victims don't trust the Commonwealth attorneys, the prosecutors, necessarily because they don't have that established relationship with them. I had a Victims Voices town hall about two weeks ago where 10 survivors of sexual assault and two homicide victims' families came to tell their stories about how they were treated in the criminal justice system. And universal themes in that Victims Town Hall were, one, they were treated very well by the detectives in the police department. They were treated very well by the victim services people, but they felt ignored and abandoned by the prosecutor's office. They felt the prosecutors were unprepared. They felt the prosecutors didn't effectively communicate with them. Victims don't expect, and survivors of sexual assault, don't expect that everyone's going to go away for the rest of their lives and get the maximum sentence. What victims want is to be heard. They want a voice. And when you don't provide them that voice, they complain. So it's not the victim's job to tell us this is what we want and and we're not going to go away until we get what we want. That's not what they want. They want to be heard. They want their cases prosecuted. They want their cases tried. They want to know what the strengths of their cases are. They want to know what the weaknesses of their cases are. They want to be involved in the process. And the current administration is not making that happen. It happened today in a case where a victim was of a shooting inside an occupied dwelling. There were 130 people in this restaurant. Owner of this restaurant waited 18 months to get her case resolved. That just got resolved today on a plea. She waited 18 months with almost zero communication from the prosecutor's office. And that's not right. Let me ask you a question, because I know you've worked in the past with victim services. What exactly is their role and what do you think should be their role in the future with fewer to get the position? The role is to facilitate the relationship between the Commonwealth Attorney's Office and the victims and the police department. So they are there to provide uh, support to the victims. Do you need a ride to court? Do you need any resources outside of court to deal with what you're dealing with? These folks are intimately involved with the victim's case from the very beginning. They're in the police department. They get called out on these crimes almost right away in the same manner that the Commonwealth Attorney gets called out. So they're very intimately involved with these cases from the get-go. I think there's a common misconception that they're driving the train on what victims want. I think the lack of communication between the Victim Services Division and the Commonwealth Attorney's Office makes it really hard on victims because if the two partners aren't communicating, that ultimately has a negative effect on the victims and the survivors of sexual assault. And I think you're naive if you if you don't think that they have an agenda and they push these cases. I see it in jurisdictions all over the place. Victims witness, their fingerprints are all over these cases. They push these cases. They pressure prosecutors. They pressure detectives. They are more involved than they should be in, in the actual prosecution of these cases. So I don't think I'm naive about it. I'll tell you that the lack of communication between the two agencies leads the victims services folks to do a lot more work than they need to do. So they're trying to push for what they want. And let's give an example in Fairfax where they're trying to get the prosecutor to talk to the victim. So if you, you call that pushy, I'm calling it doing their jobs. Their job is to facilitate communication between the prosecutor's office and the victims. If that doesn't happen, 
they become the de facto advocate for the victim. So the prosecutor bears responsibility in this as well. Victim services, not the ones that drive the train on the cases. It's a cooperative partnership. And when you don't have that, they do what they can do, what they need to do or what they can do for the victims in these cases. So I would say my experience with victim witness is a mixture of what Blake has said. And also I've had good uh, relationships and partnerships with victim services. I have represented victims of violent crime here, of murder cases and other things like that, the families. And I've worked to make sure that the families have access to services and make sure the victim witness has all their contact information so it can help them. And I think one of the things that I think would be helpful for victim witness, and I think that what they're lacking in it, perhaps it's because of the lack of communication with the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, is while their role is to support the victim, it comes off as a defense attorney at times as a blind following of the victim and pushing them to do the hard cases. And sometimes they're hard because the victim is not always that truthful and they've sold the bill of goods and are not willing to step off of it. And I understand the victim witness has to be in a supportive role and they're not supposed to be analyzing the case, but I think it would be helpful for them to understand a little bit more about how we build these cases and the elements because they are part of the police department, which is different than in other places. I think in Prince William County, they're part of the Commonwealth office. And I think in Alexandria that is as well, there's a separation. So I'm trying to get a sense of where do you think they could improve in their communications with a prosecutor's office? And do you think sometimes we see it as pushy, you see it as supportive where they might feel more comfortable with the Commonwealth office who they trust the prosecutors to evaluate the cases better? I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of... I think I can answer your question. It's the prosecutor's job to manage the case. And that includes managing the victims and working with victim services. When they don't manage the case, victim services is put in a position where they're advocating for the victim in circuit court before a judge because the prosecutor is not doing his or her job according to the victim and the victim services advocate feels compelled to do that. And that's why we, three and a half years ago, some folks called attorneys up and said, hey, will you represent victims? Will you become a victim's rights attorney? Because victims were feeling ignored and abandoned by the prosecutor's office. And the victim advocates stepped up, and I guess they had to be pushy because nobody was advocating for the victims. They brought us as pro bono attorneys in to help the victims on these serious cases and to talk to the judges and to let the judges know what the victims wanted to know, because according to the victims, the prosecutors weren't doing that job. And that hadn't happened to me or to anyone else, I guess, in 26 years of trial practice. So if the prosecutor manages the prosecution of the case effectively, there can be a cooperative relationship between the victim's advocates and the prosecutor's office where the victim is well-informed. And I told you this, and, and the input from the victims at the town hall was, we don't expect our loved ones to come back. We don't expect the trauma to go away, but we want to be heard. We want our voices to be heard and they're not heard. And perhaps the victim's advocates are acting in a way to fill that void that the prosecutor hasn't managed. So that makes sense. Let me, let me go back to that. Let me, my solution is to put a victim services advocate in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office to facilitate that relationship. So the prosecutors from the very start of a case on a child sex case or a homicide, start a relationship with a specific prosecutor and a specific victim advocate so they can build that relationship constructively and cooperatively. It doesn't mean the victim's going to get everything they want, but it's going to mean that the victim's well-informed about what's going on, what the law is, how we apply the law to the facts, what our chances are, what the legal issues are, what resources we can provide to these victims and make this awful traumatic experience a heck of a lot more palatable. What I fear, and I think it's a direct result of the lack of communication, I think everyone is frustrated, and I'll say even the judges in, in many of the jurisdictions, but uh, oftentimes the agreement or the resolution that all the parties agree to, except for perhaps the victim, is rejected, even though it's an appropriate resolution. And I think they're rejected because of all the other cases that have gone through that maybe are not appropriately dealt with. And my fear is that that won't ever go away. You know, it's now 
Oh, Alberto. In the beginning, when we had these discovery violations, judges were null processing cases. They were continuing cases. But the mistakes kept happening. The same mistakes kept happening. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing the same way and expecting a different result. Well, that was happening. And my experience with the judges and observing these cases and trying these cases is that they got frustrated and they said, well, no processing a case and letting them reindict it isn't working. Giving continuance isn't working. We're going to start dismissing cases. So now that's the new normal where it wasn't before a few years ago. And I think if you get someone in there that can restore some sanity to how these cases are prosecuted, the judges are going to act accordingly. In addition to the Commonwealth not participating in cases that had victims factor, and we had the pandemic, and we also had a lot of criminal justice reforms like 29802 and things like that. So when prosecutors were getting out of cases and the, the bench was dealing with all these new laws that were coming into place, there just wasn't a lot of faith that the prosecutor's office was doing what they needed to do for any type of case. So you had the a lot of things all in play all at the same time. And it wasn't just that the commonwealth weren't involved. It wasn't just the pandemic. And it wasn't just all the criminal justice reforms that came from the legislature in 2020 and 21. It was a lot of moving parts. And it's a big, you guys have to admit that there's been a big change in how we treat cases. And part of that is on the prosecutors not doing what they're supposed to do back during when things were going down and even now in some ways. But part of that also was the adjustment that all of us and all the players had to make in terms of all these agreements, right? We didn't have things that could be dismissed and expunged before. Like it's new, right? Round for circuit court is general district court. And when I was a prosecutor, you learned how to try a case. You learned the rules of evidence. You learned to get your butt kicked by the Peter Greenspuns and the Dixon Youngs by trying cases in Alberta Salvatore's trying cases in general district court that, you know, you could afford to lose. So when you went to circuit court on a rape, you knew the discovery rules, you knew the evidentiary rules, and uh, hopefully you were trained enough where you didn't lose those cases. And and that's not happening in the current offices. Those young prosecutors who are earnest, who want to do the right thing, aren't given the right tools. They're understaffed, they're overwhelmed, they're undertrained, they're making mistakes, They're not getting the support they need to try these important cases in circuit court. But they also have a lot more options than we had back in the day when we didn't have those options. They're using them on every case. Uh, Just today, a judge in circuit court, another 29802, and he rolled his eyes. And this is one of the more liberal judges on our bench. This is not a conservative or even a moderate judge. This is one of the more liberal judges, and he just rolled his eyes and he goes, another 29802. That's not supposed to be the magic stick for every case in circuit court. But why shouldn't it be? Yeah, why can't it be? For every the, case. The judges have to learn. There are certain cases that, that 29802 shouldn't apply to. Uh, serious, violent felonies, sexual assault cases. But the legislature didn't make that an exception in that code when they passed it. So you so, think 29802 should be used for every case? I'm not saying it should be used for every case. I think that that's what you have prosecutorial discretion for. But I think in some of those cases where the evidence is weak or maybe there's a he said, she said, or there's certain cases, sometimes if you can sort out an agreement, maybe it's right in those cases. Maybe in a violent case, a victim doesn't really want to testify and the person had mental health or whatever the issues were. And maybe you want to help put that person back on the right. I don't think it's a one size fit all. Those are all great reasons for 29802. But I'll tell you a case that was in circuit court where employee of a large retail store embezzled $24,000 worth of electronics in two years. And he had no prior criminal record, but he embezzled $24,000 in two years. And the judge rejected that because the deal was on a 298.02. And there, there weren't any mental health reasons expressed. There weren't any addiction problems or intellectual disability problems expressed in that case. It was simply an individual who embezzled from a large retail store a ton of money in the last two and a half years and was given essentially a deferred disposition with the ability to expunge it and the judge didn't accept it. So again, the 29802, for all those reasons you listed, and agree with you but it shouldn't be used for every single case. The example guess- you just gave isn't a violent or a sexual offense where there's real physical injury or harm or mental health injury or harm that's still 
lingering from like an attack and, you know, things like that, that's, it's a property crime. So if someone doesn't have any prior history and they can pay it back. And I mean, I'm, there had to be, I'm sure there was something going on with that case. I mean, I wasn't on it. I don't know anything about it. Well, one of the things I, I will follow up with what Anne is saying is that one thing I have seen is that when you're going to offer up a 2902 on a case that we wouldn't used to see that kind of deferral on, like if they're back in the day, that level of embezzlement probably would not have gotten like a misdemeanor, let alone a 29802. I think it's a property crime. And I do think that there's some, some leniency. Of course, I think that I'm a defense attorney. But I also think that the prosecutor, if you're going to make that offer, you got to sell it. You know, that he paid $10,000 in restitution, or he had just turned 18 and he would have been 17 in 360 days, and it would have been, you know, dealt with in juvenile court on a, a deferred disposition. I have found that when I think an offer is reasonable, and of course, my idea of reasonable is probably very left of center, I will say that if I've got to sell something to the circuit court, I'm just not going to say the prosecutor can't give the worst and most egregious facts out there and then be surprised when 29802 is rejected. What Ed is saying, though, is like those kinds of cases shouldn't even get to a 29802. Like if it's facts rising to 24,000, right? Like that's not but- a normal case where someone on one day made a bad choice. You know what I mean? It sounds like you're saying because of the pattern of behavior, you weigh every case with what were the intent behind it? Do there are there mitigating factors? You know, that is that I guess is that way. I don't want to put words. Sure. In no, that's that's exactly right. You know, I've had cases in the past and in, in prior administrations where someone stole hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, because their spouse had brain cancer and you know, they were going through the worst time of their lives. And they did it to, you know, do things for the wife that they couldn't do because they couldn't afford it because she was going to die. So those are cases that are, you know, unique that may, I don't know about $100,000, but may warrant a 29802 disposition. But someone who plans things criminal, that's criminal behavior. The example I gave previously is criminal behavior. It's not born of youth or age or disability. It's, It's born of a criminal mindset. And it went on for two years. But what if it was an evidence but, issue and they didn't have the records or an officer left or the company didn't keep the right records to prove them? That, that aren't in evidence. I mean, that's just not the case. You could put facts in anything and make it a 29802. I'm talking about criminal behavior. And, and that's why there has to be accountability and prosecution. You know, I'm not saying everybody goes to jail. Everybody shouldn't go to jail. Very few people should go to jail. The people that commit serious violent felonies and the People that commit criminal behavior should go to jail. But the vast majority of people make mistakes. They need breaks. They deserve breaks. The people who are in our underserved populations, I've talked about them before, people with addiction, people with mental illness, people with afflicted with poverty, the black and brown community, all these people that have reasons that are not criminal to do what they do deserve second, third, and even fourth chances. Well, let me. Well, let Blake this. We talked about how Blake, Blake, I was going to say, Blake keeps trying to chime in and we keep cutting him off. <laughs> so, Ed, would you back your people? If one of your line people cuts a deal where they do a 29802 on $24,000, are you going to back that person? What does that mean? Am I going to evaluate the case and say you shouldn't have done that? And here's why you shouldn't have done that? Or tell me why you gave the 29802 and we'll look at it and see if the reasons well, you gave. Do you trust, are you going to trust your people to be able to do these deals? Are you going to trust them? I hope that, I have staff that I'm able to trust and that understand the policies that I want to implement and that implement those policies correctly. It's a large office. People are going to make mistakes. You know, it's not automatically. Discano get the same benefit had, to trust his people. He's had three and a half years to make the changes he needs to make to learn from his mistakes. And he continues to make the same mistakes. How much more time do we give him? What I'm saying is, should he be able to back his people? Should he be able to say that prosecutor made a decision to cut that deal for whatever reason, and I'm going to back him? From what I understand, leadership makes decisions on felony cases. So every case that goes up to circuit court is evaluated by leadership, whoever that is. I don't know who that is. And leadership makes a decision on how that case is prosecuted. It's not like in the old days when Bob Haran told us, do justice, do the right thing, and don't try a case that you can't win, okay? If we screwed up, he'd say, all right, this is why you screwed up. This is what you shouldn't do. This is what you should do. But he gave us a lot more discretion than these younger prosecutors have today. So telling the implication that 
these prosecutors have discretion to do things, I just don't think is right in circuit court. I don't think they have that discretion. I think they're given their marching orders and they do what the leadership tells them to do. Do you think having your experience of being a trial lawyer, and I'm just throwing up the softball here, is going to help you deal with situations where there is public blowback on a prosecutor's offer? A hundred percent. That and the fact that I've done criminal defense work for a heck of a lot longer than I did any kind of prosecution work. It gives me an ability to see a case from both sides and to understand not only the prosecution side, but the defense side and say, okay, I know what the defense attorney is talking about. I know what this person's going through because I've had my own clients go through this. So I understand it from this perspective. I have the trial experience to understand the value of a case, the issues that arise, evidentiary issues that may cause you to break a case down where a judge is going, why did you do this? And I'll be able to explain it. And I've seen too many cases where maybe there was a reason to break a case down, but the prosecutor couldn't explain it. I saw it today. I wanted to go back a little bit. I know we're going back back and forth on 298.2. I think, again, what ended up happening was the confidence was lost. So since you had a lot of these issues before on regular cases, when the judges start seeing multiple 298.02s, they became very suspect and they started rejecting pleas, which I hadn't seen pleas getting rejected at the rate that they're getting rejected now. And a lot of that has to do with- but Alberto, Blake is right. Like why can't, if it, I'm not saying every single case, but if you had nine out of 10 of your cases are 298.02s, then that we have the law. Right. It, the law was passed for a reason. 100%. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they're getting rejected because of the way the the way there's things a lack have of been, trust in there's the a lack of trust. And I'll tell you why. This is my and look, and I and I'll get to a, a couple of things I think that Scano has done that I I appreciate. But the fact is, way at the beginning when COVID hit, like Ed was saying, there was a big opportunity on a smaller docket to train these new Commonwealth attorneys. And that went away. So what ended up happening was you have new attorneys who have basically not tried even DWIs, which are, DWIs are great trials to learn. They're very complicated, very technical. Now, when everything started picking up and these felonies start going, you had a lot more mistakes. And I think judges started seeing that and they started getting frustrated. So I'm not saying that the dispositions are not appropriate. I think, yes, 298s, that, there's a fantastic tool. But I will tell you, a lot of judges are, in my opinion, are rejecting those deals because of the lack of trust, just like Anna said. So, and I'll get to what I think Discano has done well. He has hired a lot of people, and I like the diversity that's in that office. And I will tell you, the vast majority of those prosecutors are fantastic people, but I don't think they've gotten the right training that they should have gotten. And that's what has led us to the frustration today. Because I look, I have had prosecutors now not give me the 298.02, because they just had other cases rejected and they're afraid of getting rejected again by the judge. So it's not just the prosecutors giving the 298.02, maybe they've given them out too much. I'm sure some have given some out because they don't want to go to trial because they're just not prepared or are able to. But I know I've gotten really bad deals because of the fear of showing up in the newspaper for offering a bad deal in a case that really should have gotten that deal. So, I mean, that's, that's my, I'll get off my soapbox. I guess I, I don't really have a question, but. <laughs> if the Senate flips and the Republicans take over, they are likely to roll back a lot of reform. If they were to bring back the death penalty, would you prosecute death penalty cases? Probably not. I mean, if you have, I can't imagine, you know, those are the, the worst cases that you can possibly imagine. And we've only had in Moro's administration. How many death penalty cases? One or two? You had Prieto, which was Haran, and then the start of Moro. And you had the guy. The CIA guy, Kazi. Yeah. No, Kazi wasn't under Moro. That was Haran. Hey, Blake, you know what I think? I think putting somebody in a eight by 10 cell for the rest of their life is worse than the death penalty. No sunlight, no fresh air for the rest of their lives. I think that's worse than the death penalty. Was it just Prieto and Lawler then? Lawler was the only one under Morrow, and then that he was commuted to life. Well, that, that's the only one, right? I think so. And the sniper. Sniper was sniper. Oh, Prince William, right? That's Prince William. They did the right. kid in, in Fairfax, right? Because right, Speedy Trial ran here for Muhammad. Yeah, 
It did. Sometimes jurisdictions want to get their trial going too after somebody's already been convicted and given the time. It's just something that's always bothered me. It's a lot of resources going. I don't know. That's just me. So let me ask a question. And I know your firm has worked with the police and represented them. I know there's been a breakdown with the current Commonwealth's office in Fairfax and the police. There's a lot of distrust. I think they've rebuilt some of that up in some ways. They've I said in some ways, it's a little bit different than it was back at the start in 2020. How would you bridge that gap back? I mean, I'm assuming you'd have a better trust just because of your relationship. Yeah, I have uh, high standards for police officers. I'll tell you that, you know, I've worked with them as a prosecutor. I've worked with them more as a criminal defense attorney. I've represented them on administrative matters for better part of two decades. So I know exactly what to expect of a police officer. And I will tell you that um, the good cops are going to love me and the bad cops are going to hate me because I'm, I hold them to a high standard. I know how to prosecute use of force cases. I know how to prosecute uh, officer-involved shootings. I know what the law is. I know how to apply the facts to the law. And I think the mistake my opponent's making is he's making political decisions instead of legal decisions. Instead of making these decisions transparently, He's using straight indictments, which are awful ways to prosecute important cases. On a case like an officer-involved shooting, you either send it to preliminary hearing, you have a preliminary hearing, you let the victim's family know what's going on, you let them know how difficult it is, because the law, as it applies to officer-involved shootings, is very difficult to apply to a police officer to get a guilty verdict, and you let them know that. You let them know what the facts of the case are, and you let the public in and to see what's going on. And you make it a very transparent process. When you straight indict it to a grand jury where it's the grand jury is not even recorded and the grand jury comes back, no probable cause, as they did in the most recent case, people wonder why, what happened? What was the testimony? We'll never know because it's not a transparent way to prosecute those cases. And I think the public's entitled to know. I think the victim's family's entitled to know. And I think that makes uh, that whole process needs to be much better understood by the public. Hey, uh, make a comment on that. I do find it interesting, and this happens throughout every level of uh, the judicial system. Defense attorneys do it. Uh, now prosecutors do it too. But whenever a police officer does get in trouble, I think for some reason, many defense attorneys forget the whole presumption of innocence. And what I find interesting too is now you you never see a 298.02 offered to a police officer, uh, which leads me to believe that the Commonwealth Attorney's Office is treating police officers differently. They are not offering them the same. Go ahead. I've had a 298.02 for an officer. Was it in Fairfax? No. So my point was... But you uh, said that they're not... <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought Ed was funny for Fairfax County. Right? So, <laughs> so my encompasses all of it. <laughs> I know, but my you're right. But my my point is it's like, but it just feels as if there's the same considerations not being given to a certain group of people, which we all know that is wrong, no matter what group of people that is. Uh where does it stop? So all of a sudden it's, you know, if a defense attorney gets in trouble, we're not going to offer them some sort of a disposition. Alberto, it happens now. Look at what people with money get sometimes versus people that don't. So well that's true. I mean, if you have money to hire an attorney on a reckless driving, your attorney's going in and talking to the prosecutor and you're getting a better result a lot of times. And if you don't have the money to do that, they waive the jail on it so you can't get a court appointed. And then you're stuck by yourself in front of a judge that may or may not do what a lot of other people are getting just because they had the money to do it. Uh, it already it already kind of happens. It, it does. And that's I find that to be a little bit of a separate issue because that's just the issues with socioeconomic injustice that's going on where, you know, prosecutors are not even involved and you have people with money that are getting better dispositions because others without it can't hire the attorney to actually speak with a prosecutor. But my point is I don't like it in any jurisdiction where any particular person, because of what they do as a job, is not given that presumption of innocence right from the beginning. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the perception that it has to go to the papers and it has to be something that's politicized. Well, I actually, so, dis- I totally disagree with that. Totally? And this is, and this is why. Hmm, because, you and Alberto disagree. <laughs> I know, write it <laughs> down. Only happened that. once. <laughs> because, I mean, I do think that police officers, they wear the white hat. That's the point. Like they're supposed to be the good guys. And so when they're the alleged to be the bad guys, things, they are scrutinized more. It is. 
you know, we are more disappointed of the yes, they are people, but when they fall down on the job, I don't change my presumption of innocence. I think everybody gets a good defense. I can defend just about anyone at this point. I definitely on, think even Alberto. Lawyer, <laughs> yeah, even Alberto, although I think there's a conflict. But I remember I don't know if you remember when the law- a lawyer recently was, or recently, a few years ago, was sentenced for embezzlement from an older couple. I mean, he got six years. His guidelines were probation, six years, and he was yeah. not young. But that also happens a lot in embezzlement cases, especially, you know, every judge has certain cases that are just not their favorite. And embezzlement is one that really gets under the skin of a lot of people because it's that level of trust that you have with the person that you've hired. And it's not just a theft. It's that continual, you have to plan, you have to like go in intentionally wanting to do the embezzlement. It's usually over a period of time. And, and it, a lot of times it's smaller companies and sometimes it's bigger ones, but it can really damage, you know, stuff. So like, I've seen people get more on embezzlement, like back, over back, maybe, you know, over the years, just because of the nature of the But company. I've never seen someone get that much time. They got a premium because they were a lawyer. Okay, because well, let our me, profession. But let is me say this: supposed to be honest, it's, it's fact specific. Each case is different, just like any other case. Now, thank you, Captain Obvious. Okay, no, no, but but well, you brought up an issue where it was embezzlement against an elderly couple that probably took out the money from their retirement. I don't know the facts, but it's different. I'm sure there's been other defense attorneys who have not gone to jail on that or have gotten probation. My issue is it shouldn't matter that they are a certain job and be treated differently because of that. Because if it didn't matter, then you'd have wealthy people should be going to jail all the time instead of the brown, black, poor people who are going to jail because they don't have the money. Wealthy people, by your logic, don't have anything to worry about. Why are they going out there committing crimes? Why are they doing anything? You know, I don't they think should that be held was to my logic. Standard, I had nothing right? to do. Like that was not my logic. My logic was people that do jobs of trust. You brought up white police hat. officers, and police officers and lawyers, and other people of trust, like people who work in the clerk's office. We saw that happen. You know, judges if they commit a crime, these are people that do get the book thrown at them. But we're here to talk to Ed. So speaking Hi. of police officers, there was at least at the beginning of of this current administration, a belief that if you had a mental health condition, that assault on police officer charges would be dealt with differently. We've seen that that is not the case and that more people are going upstairs to circuit court with assault on police officer charges who have mental health conditions. While it is a case-by-case situation, what is your thought process when it comes to somebody who has a mental health condition, they're experiencing a psychotic event, and a police officer is assaulted or injured in that event, what would your policy be on dealing with those cases generally? So I've never liked the assault on police officer statute. I just think it's it's difficult. And unless an officer is punched with a fist or kicked or injured in some way, and cops aren't going to like this answer, but you know, you're going to get in scuffles with people and you're going to get people that resist arrest and you're going to get pushed and shoved and tossed sometimes. And unless it's a punch or a kick, I think it's kind of goes with the job. So people with mental health problems or mental health issues, and they get caught up in the judicial system. And instead of having the CIT people respond, you have a police officer respond. They respond with force and a situation gets out of hand. I don't think those cases, and and again, this is a case-by-case scenario, and it depends on the level of injury to the officer, but I think that that person needs more mental health treatment than felony conviction for assault on a police officer. But again, that's a case-by-case basis. Things are changing. You know, back in the day, you know, it was a six-month mandatory minimum, and, you know, you want to do that for pushing an officer's arm away, and that's technically an assault, but that's just not justice. That's not the right thing to do. And is assault on police officer something that in the right case would be something where you would choose to use a 298.02, especially with mental health and substance abuse. It is a violent crime, but it is it has those pieces. Now, that sounds like a, a nice way to deal with a person with autism or some kind of mental illness or disability that gets involved with the police that, you know, that 298.02 will give them the appropriate resources to deal with it. And it'll make the officer feel like that officer is getting some measure of justice. We've been cutting off Blake quite a bit. Um, by we, I mean Anna. I did what, too. Sorry, Blake. Okay. Blake, what, what did you have to add? What would your policy be on certifying juveniles as adults? Um, I never have to certify a juvenile as an adult. The juvenile court, the 
juvenile justice system should have enough tools and resources where we never have to do that. But in, you know, I can only think of one case, the Malvo case, we're talking about the sniper case in the early 2000s. That type of case might be a case where we'd have to certify him as an adult. I would hope we never have to certify juvenile as an adult. So add on regular basic policy things, how it would affect us. On traffic cases, would you have your prosecutors doing traffic cases where there's an attorney involved? Infractions, you mean? Yeah, for like infractions. Oh, yeah. It's simple, super simple. It moves the docket faster than if a prosecutor is not involved. So, yes, prosecutors will be involved in all those cases. It'll, it'll make the docket move quicker and more smoothly. And Attorneys or no, or no attorneys? Uh, I wouldn't do the no attorneys. Prince William does that. And I think it's a big mess. But I think when you do have an attorney, it makes things a lot quicker and smoother. And across the, the board, well, there's an added benefit, too, of uh, handling those cases as far as even trial practice. The trial's a trial. Yeah. Would you have your prosecutors doing, like in the 2K docket, where somebody has waived an attorney, like in an assault case or a trespassing case? Would you have your attorneys on do a, On a civilian complaint? Yeah, like uh, yeah, like a trespassing or an assault where the defendant doesn't have a lawyer. Yeah, I, I would have my prosecutors prosecute those cases. Ed, do you think you would keep a JDR team and a GDC team and have people follow their individual cases, or would you do it on a more rotating basis where they get there's we're going back and forth from JDR to GDC, and maybe it's not all they're not following the cases if they get continued or sent up to circuit or whatever. No, I would have deputies in charge of each level of the courthouse. So you'd have a GDC deputy, you'd have a juvenile deputy, and you'd have a major crimes deputy, and you'd have specialized prosecutors for each of the units. So you'd have a juvenile sex crimes unit, you would have a major crimes unit, you know, you'd have a robbery unit, not that we do robberies anymore, but we used to. You'd have a adult sex crimes unit, you, you know, people with specialized skills for the really tough cases. And then your younger line prosecutors would be trained on all three levels under the supervision of those deputies and uh, skill positions. Ooh, oh, anybody and I else have? Oh, go ahead. Broadway type person in there to you know be the liaison between the public defenders, the court appointed attorneys, criminal defense attorneys, anybody who has a problem or you know issue would be able to come to this deputy and you know have an open door with that communication with the office. I, I missed the first part about it, but. I, mean, I think the idea is to sort of have an, a liaison, so a senior or a deputy that is supposed to, let's say I'm dealing with a line prosecutor and I either don't think I'm getting an offer that is in Ed's policy, or I feel like it's really important that I get, it's basically an appeal in the office saying, this guy's mental health condition, I really think I need a 29802. This is why I should get it. It's not going anywhere with a line prosecutor, but there's a deputy in the office that you're saying that we could talk to and reach those, broach those same issues. Yes, or me, obviously. In the past, when I started in Fairfax, you generally, there was a particular deputy that, or senior that we would go to on occasion when we had a difficult case or square peg kind of case. But generally, we didn't go above the head of the person we were negotiating with. Well, sometimes Unless, you have Rodway right and say, Ian, I got this case. I need you to look at how of messed up. And he would do it. And he was very valuable. And, and the, he was valuable to the office in that role. And he was valuable to the criminal defense bar in that role. Again, but would you have issues? that person? Would you have that person, though, help? Sometimes with the younger prosecutor, they feel like they either can't do it or they don't know enough, they feel like they're being tricked by the defense attorney. Do you feel like there's a role for that deputy in your office to help train the I, younger prosecutors in negotiation? I'm going to have a, a senior trial attorney just do training, like a training coordinator. That prosecutor won't go to trial, won't go to court, but this senior trial attorney will train the younger line prosecutors in uh, evidence, discovery, voir dire, all the techniques of trial law. And that'll be a full-time position, hopefully, to enable our younger line prosecutors to learn how to try a case the right way. That'll be a hopefully a full-time position. What qualifications do you have to run an office with 50 attorneys when you're coming from an office that has five? So I'm coming from an office that had five. I also came from Brilliant Hunley and we had 12 I've been on the boards of board of directors for several nonprofit organizations. I've run those type of organizations before. So I have plenty of management experience to run this office. 
And I'll have plenty of senior trial attorneys to help me manage the office who know what they're doing. If you were to win, would you keep the red light outside the office? First thing to go. Well, maybe the second thing to go. Yeah, everybody knows what the first thing to go is. Answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the nameplate? I will advocate for a lot of the prosecutors who are employed now. I think that there are many good people there. Buddy, the problem is not with the line prosecutors. They are young, they are earnest, they want to do the right thing. They took the job for the right reasons. They are overwhelmed, understaffed, and undertrained. They want to do the right job. They want to do the job the way they were hired to do. They haven't been given the tools to do that. Everybody understands that. The judges understand that. The criminal defense bar understands that. Maybe Steve doesn't understand that. Well, one of the things Steve has said, and going to Alberto's question, is that you don't have any experience running a large organization. Now, prior to being Neither head Commonwealth it. attorneys, how much experience had he had running a large organization? How many trials did he have? I think he might have had two federal trials and one he was sanctioned. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Descano, I have you have to answer my question. How many places has he run that has lots of the people? The softball, Ed. I wouldn't know. I think zero. I was going to say, how is Ed supposed to know that question? Well, he's his opponent. And I think it was in the Kojo Namdi show that, that Steve called himself a career po- prosecutor. He's tried less cases than, uh, right here, he's tried less cases than that. Five. I think wow. he might have two cases as a federal prosecutor. He calls himself a career prosecutor. He's never tried a single case in Fairfax County Court on any level in three and a half years. He got his bar license in Virginia in 2017. He's not a manager of people. He's proven that. He's not a trial lawyer. He's proven that. He is a policy maker. He'd make a pretty good politician in the House of Delegates or maybe the Senate. But uh, as a Commonwealth attorney, he's utterly failed. I mean, I'll tell you, I like a lot of the ideas that are coming from the platform that he ran on. I I like, but I think it's just, I, I think there's issues with implementing them. That's exactly right. And we'll, we'll call that um, the last time I get a good deal in Fairfax. Well, next week after this airs. <laughs> I think that is a wrap for us. Anybody else? Blake, I don't want to cut you off. No, I got all my questions in. <laughs> Anne, would you like to add something? No, well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you accepting our invite to come on and... Um, and do you have any final things that you want to say, like a final statement to let, let the uh... early voting starts on May 5th? You can go to several polling locations within the county and vote starting May 5th. The primary is on June 20th. It's an open primary. So that means if you're a registered voter in Fairfax County, I don't care what party you belong to or if you belong to no party, you can vote in that primary. It is open. I urge everyone to exercise their right to vote on June 20th or before. This is an important race. That's an important race throughout Northern Virginia. There are several important races going on and we and a lot of people don't know what the Commonwealth attorney even does. And it's super important nowadays. People's lives are at stake, literally. So I'm asking everybody to be informed, Google me, Google Steve, and make an informed decision and go out and vote. Thank you very much, Ed Nuttall. Yeah, thanks, thank God. you for thanks for joining us, Blake, to sub in for Mr. Norse. Nope, I didn't talk too much. Thanks for joining us on Crime Time. I hope you liked what you heard, and we hope you join us for the next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, Crime Time with Virginia Defense Attorneys, be sure to share our podcast with someone that you know. You can find our podcast on most of the major platforms like Spotify, Google, and Apple, as well as some of the smaller podcast platforms. We also post on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So you can find our episodes there every week on Tuesday at 9 a.m. If you want to leave us a review or a comment and tell us what topics you'd like to hear about, we always welcome feedback and we're always looking for new ideas and guests to bring onto our show. We hope you keep listening and thanks for being a supporter of our podcast. Mm-hmm.